Hi, I'm Brandon Webb, former Navy SEAL and founder of The Crate Club, the number one tactical and survival gear subscription box in America, curated by former Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, and Special Forces professionals. I know being prepared matters, so if you're looking for a great gift, choose Crate Club. Also, from now until the end of the year, for every annual crate plan you buy, we will donate a crate to a U.S. active duty service member. So help us support the military community and give the gift of Crate Club today at CrateClub.com. That's C-R-A-T-E Club.com. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Time of week again, and it's Big Phil camping from across the pond with Soft Rep Radio. Okay, on target, on time, and with subjects that we're going to talk about this week. Let's have a quick butchers at what they are. Then I'm going to cover a little bit of EDC, and we're going to talk about acid attacks. I'm going to give you another dog this week, and we're going to talk about. Well, I'm not going to tell you. You'll find out in a bit. I'm also going to be talking to you this week a little bit more about the troubles and Operation Banner, and giving you a perspective. And looking at a terrorist organisation, okay? And I'll let you know which one as we get there. So a fun-packed week. It's been a fun-packed week in the UK as well. The settle, settling down period from the from the elections is now well underway and the parties are all back at work doing this, that and the other. I think Jeremy Corbyn's probably going to stand down from his position. Looks likely that they'll have to appoint somebody else as the opposition leader. Uh, so that would be interesting to see how that develops. You've got Boris Johnson now. Well, let's see if he can... De- deliver what he's promised. Um, as from a veteran's point of view, there's still veterans being pulled over the coals. There's still historic allegations going on. So we're not out of the woods of any of this stuff yet. It's going to be a very interesting time to see that if, like I say, all the promises they made during the election campaigns, let's see if you can actually start delivering. But in the meantime, like I say, the other parties are all rejigging and reshaping. But we've now got five years of Boris Johnson and his lot so let's see what they can do. And I hope they can deliver what they've promised. And their first their first real hurdle is the B word or Brexit. So let's see if they can actually deliver Brexit. They're already rattling on about having it all done by January and the trade deals in place and all that sort of stuff. So it's interesting times in the UK, polit- politically wise. Let's see if in the next few weeks I can give you some decent reports back as to say, well, yes, they've done this so far. Yes, they've done that. They're helping here. They're helping there. I had an interesting week this week. Although I can't talk about too much of it yet because it's not in the public domain, I went for a briefing at MOD Whitehall and I've looked at the Army's new recruiting campaign, which will be launching on the 2nd of January next year. So we've got that to look forward to because I've got my opinions on it. And actually, 
I think it's going to be a fairly decent time for the British military recruiting. I really do. I think they're getting a lot of stuff right. They're not completely right. They're not completely out of the woods yet, but they're getting there and things are stepping up. After the last campaign, the Snowflake campaign, which was actually one of the most successful recruiting campaigns they've ever done and recorded, the next one follows suit. And like I say, I'm not allowed to talk about it yet, but on the 2nd of January, you will be getting my full report and you can find out what I've been talking about with the Ministry of Defence because... It's quite cool. Um, It's certainly cool to be invited back to a place like Whitehall, which is the heart of the British military, and be involved in such a in such a high level discussion with recruiting being one of the main focuses of any army in the world. Okay, it's nice to have your little piece and go and be able to say your thing in front of generals and all sorts of that sort of stuff. So the generals are listening to Big Phil now, which is nice to know. Okay, and I had a thoroughly good catch up with two or three people I hadn't seen for a very long time. So that's cool. We've got all that coming in the post. Okay, right. Where do we start this week's show then? We're going to look at EDC. And I decided to cover EDC, eh? Because we haven't, we're not out of the woods with this terrorism stuff yet, as we are not out of the woods with gang culture. So we've still got these problems. They're still going on in London, as I'm sure they're going on in other parts of the world. I'm sure America isn't completely free from, free from violent crime and all that sort of stuff. And unfortunately, acid attacks are a consideration that we need to, to need to think about. And our EDC needs to, needs to sort of like echo the way we're thinking, all right? Because it's all right, you know, talking about these things and being pre-warned and pre-armed and all that sort of stuff. But we've got to actually carry the gear to follow this stuff through. Because if we can't follow this sort of stuff through, then, you know, we're wasting our time having an EDC. Okay, acid attacks in. We had a spate here in 2017 where acid attacks were huge. Okay, they were happening all the time. There was all sorts of stuff going on. They, they were frequent. They were happening all over London. And it really was, it really was a scourge. The nature of the attacks, okay, we're talking... We're talking powder, we're talking air rifle, air, air, not air pistols, um, water pistols, you know, filled with this honking stuff, or just squeezy bottles. So the delivery was accurate. Most of these attacks were happening on, on, on people's faces, on their chests, and on places that were going to massively affect them. So it was, it, it, you know, if you get involved in an acid attack, the chances are, you know, you're going to get extremely injured extremely quickly with extremely long-term effects such is the nature of the attack. So you do need to think about it. You do need to take it seriously, okay? Let's have a look at what at what the NHS said over here. So the NHS were, were massively behind all the stuff that went on, and I'm going to cover what they said then. So in a guide produced by the NHS, they came up with this thing called the three R's. In the event of an attack, an acid attack, Number one, report, dial 999 or 911 as it is in the States. Remove contaminated clothing carefully. Rinse immediately in running water, okay? So the free R report. Report, remove and rinse, all right? So that was the, that was the, the sort of like parting line. Let's just go into that in a little more detail, okay? So what do we actually do if we stumble across somebody who's been involved in an acid attack? Well, the most important thing of first aid for me is not to become a casualty yourself. So you've got to actually make sure that the, the attack is not still ongoing or that the people that are, you know, participating in this attack have been taken down, whether you can do it yourself or whether somebody else has done it, but don't go bowling in if they're still slinging this stuff about if you don't or are not capable of, t- of doing anything about it because you will become a casualty yourself. But the most important thing... Once that's all done, 
in a first aid sense, is to immediately wash the affected part of the body with plenty of fresh or saline water. It needs to be fresh or saline. It needs to be clean. There is no... If you if you do this with dirty water, what, what you do is, although there might be some sort of short-term gain, as in getting the acid off, long-term, you could set some horrendous affections in there because what this acid is doing, really, is just lifting layers of skin off of the victim... And now, all that stuff that's protected by the skin, you can deliver germs and, and disease straight in there if you do the wrong thing. And so, you, you know, all right, you might have relieved the pain temporarily, but in the long run, you know, some of these infections can even cause death. So you need to get this right. You need to make sure that, you know, the water that you use is clean. All right? I can't stress that enough. You need to keep flushing the effective burn area with plenty of cool water. Not too cold if you can help it, although beggars can't be choosers until the patient's burning sensation starts fading. This could take 30 to 45 minutes. It's not going to be something that happens straight away. Oh, there you go. It's all better now. Acid attacks are particularly hideously painful, okay? If you can, you've got to remove all jewellery or clothing which has had contact with the acid. Obviously, if, 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 if your clothes are drenched in the acid or have still got, you know, acid dust all over it, all the time you're wriggling about, you're just delivering this acid to even more places on the body. That is no good. You don't want that to happen. That's gonna just that's just gonna inflame, aggravate, and make the whole thing worse. Okay. And like I say, you're now actually spreading the stuff. So you've got to get this stuff off. If you're gonna have to rip clothes off, cut clothes off, okay, that's what you're gonna have to do. All right. We're gonna talk about what we put in the EDC in a little bit, but like I say, bear that in mind. You're gonna have to remove people's clothes and jewellery, all right? And you're going to have to get it off there prompt as you can because otherwise, like I say, it's going to become a bigger problem. Don't apply any kind of cream or ointment on the effective area as this may slow the treatment procedure by doctors and it might actually accelerate the burning. So if you put the wrong cream onto a burn, you can actually start cooking people properly, right? <laughs> or, you know, it then becomes slippery, you can't get it off, it infuses with the acid and you've now got, you've now made it a sticky acid as opposed to one that can be washed off. Don't start sticking cream on people, all right? It ain't going to happen for you, right? It ain't going to work properly, okay? It would be an absolute travesty if you turned up, started to help somebody, and then made it worse with your own actions. So please, please, please don't do that. And if possible, once you've managed to get all this stuff off, okay, successfully, use sterilised gauze to loosely wrap the effective area. The gauze protects the skin from the air, debris, dirt, and contamination, all right? Once a person's been treated, they need to go straight to hospital if there isn't stuff on the scene immediately to take things further than what you can do it all right and like i say once they've been to the hospital dressings and that are going to have to be changed frequently and these wounds are going to have to be treated you know with extreme caution so that they don't get infected any further than what they were okay so that's more or less the treatment as far as we can go obviously in hospital they can you know we can start talking skin grafts we can start, you know, putting people on on, on, on proper on, on proper stuff so that they can bring this stuff down, you know, all that sort of stuff. But on the street, on the EDC level, okay, all you can really do is what I've discussed above. Okay, so what can I carry? What can I carry to aid me with this? Well, obviously, we can carry gauze. It doesn't take a lot to have two or three large pieces of gauze in your, in, in your kit. In fact, I've got two or three big patches which go up against my ballistic plate, okay? They're just flat. I don't have to roll them up. I know where they are, okay? And they're stuffed there, okay? They're clean. They're sterile, and they're in sterile dressing containers, okay? Uh, you know, you rip them open, and you get in there. So I've got that. Water. You need water in your kit. You need clean water in your kit. Now, I'm not, you know, saying you've got to carry litres and litres of water, 
but you need water in such a way that you can deliver it out. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's in a squeezy bottle yourself with the water or in just a normal water container, you need clean water. And that's, you know, immediately if you can get that water out and start working straight away with water that you know is clean, you've had a result. You need scissors or some sort of J-knife with which you can remove clothing straight away, okay? You need to be, as soon as you've started washing stuff off, you need to be removing that clothing. And, you know, the old emergency scissors are fairly decent. Or, like I say, I used to carry a J-knife everywhere with me when I was a bodyguard, and I had had an incident where I had to cut a star's T-shirt off because his fans were grabbing him so much that they were actually restricting the blood flow to his neck. Now, on the same score of things, you know, if you need to get clothes off quickly, a J-knife just goes boom, straight up the back of it, straight off, undoes it like a bib, and you just pull the clothes off of them, all right? So a great bit of kit. If you know you're going to be in a location where this might happen, i.e. you're a nightclub doorman or you are a bodyguard and your client has a particular threat against them, uh, such as an acid attack or something like that, it ain't a bad idea to have some clear protective glasses for yourself to help you not become a casualty, all right? Or you can just slip them on, see a large gang of youths coming over, there you go, on they go. You don't have to stand with them on all night. But if the, if the situation calls for it, it's not bad to be able to think, I'll tell you what, it might go off here, bang. Let's bung some protective highway on straight away, just in case somebody starts slinging around something stupid, all right? Because it can happen. And to assume is to make an ass out of me and you. We all know that we all know how it goes, all right? If you think it's not going to happen, the chances are it probably will, and it will go extremely wrong. So there you go. So that's what you can carry, all right? Like I say, dressings, clean water, and scissors to get the clothes off. And if you can, or you think that you're going to be in a position whereby you might have to do something like this, it's not a bad idea, okay, to have some form of glasses with you, all right? So there you go. That's your EDC acid attacks this week. You can find out all sorts of other stuff by going on the NHS website. You can look on Wikipedia even and find about acid attacks, all right? So if you're worried about them, pre-arm yourself with a bit of training, find out a little bit more, find out what's likely to happen and what you can do about it, and listen to Big Phil. Nick Kaufman here. I'm the editor-in-chief for softrep.com, and I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Mac Weldon. Mack Weldon is a premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart design and premium fabrics. I've been wearing Mack Weldon's crew socks and crew neck t-shirts for the last few weeks, and words can't describe just how comfortable they are. Their t-shirts are my favorite from their product line because they're so light and have a perfect fit. I can wear them as my everyday shirt or even at the gym. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. The quality is incredible, and their online shopping experience is easy and convenient. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and use promo code SOFTREP at checkout. If you're looking for any last-minute holiday gifts, check out Mack Weldon today. Let's talk dogs. You know, I like my dogs. As promised, I said I'd bring you a load of dogs this year and we talk about different breeds and their roles and what they do and how they fare up and just general chit-chat about each breed that I decide to talk about. Now, this week's dog is an extremely famous dog. In fact, if one walked into any rhythm room in the world right now and you were sat there, you'd know exactly what it was. You wouldn't have to say to me, hey, Phil, what kind of dog is that? You would know, all right? Any guesses so far? Well, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to keep you guessing for two more seconds, all right? It's a white dog, all right? But it's a white dog with black spots. 
Are we getting any closer yet? Is it on the tip of your tongue? Do you know what this dog is? You must do by now. Well, if you don't know, it's been the feature of a very, very, very well-known film. And on this film, there was 101 of them. Are we any closer to guessing what this week's dog is? Yeah, of course you know. The 101 Dalmatians by British author Dodie Smith and later on reproduced by Walt Disney is featuring my dog of the week, which is the Dalmatian. All right, there you go. Who don't like a Dalmatian? I absolutely love Dalmatians. What a lovely, lovely looking dog. Well, it's classed as a medium-sized dog. They don't get massive, but they're not small. They're muscly. There's never an ounce of fat on a Dalmatian, if you see a Dalmatian. And they're a fit, fit animal, all right? They are, really are. Most Dalmatians I've ever come across have been extremely fit animals, okay? They're a great dog, all right? Well-defined, muscular, excellent endurance and stamina. And they stand from 19 to 23 inches tall. The males are usually slightly larger than the females. And like I say, there ain't no fat on these dogs. Let's have a look at the history of the dog then, all right? The Dalmatian, where does it come from? Well, the first documented Dalmatians were absolutely years ago. Years and years and years ago, in fact. The 1600s, all right? The 1600s, they were first depicted in pieces of art. These pieces of art came from Croatia, okay? Years and years ago, 1600s in Croatia. During the Regency period then, the Dalmatian became a status symbol. And it used to trot alongside horse-drawn carriages. They became a bit of a, like I say, they, they, if you had a Dalmatian, you had money. All right, so you'd have your horse-drawn carriage. There you'd be, Lord Muck on the back of your horse-drawn carriage. And you'd have your Dalmatian running down the side. Or maybe you'd have a couple of Dalmatians running down each side, all right? And they would act as escort to the, to the carriage, all right? So much so that they were actually known as, they actually got sort of like nicknamed coach dogs, all right? And if you had dough in those times, you were somebody, all right? And they were coach dogs. And they would, they would follow your coach up and down. And I'll tell you why, because these dogs are extremely loyal, all right? They make great guard dogs, all right? Because like I say, they're fit, they're athletic, they're medium-sized dogs, so they're not small. So they can get amongst you if they have to, all right? They're, they're, they're a very, very loyal breed, all right? And they are actually known to have been used as war dogs in Croatia, where they used to, they used to help guard the troops and guard areas and, you know, they would wander about and they would they, they become your sort of like first-line defence. A very well-disciplined dog. And like I say, with its sense of loyalty, it will stay by your side. Later on then, they became known in the, in the firefighting days, all right? And especially in the US, Dalmatians used to accompany fire carts in the days when they were still drawn by horse and cart, right? And Dalmatians would go everywhere. And they, they were used not to put the fires out, but when the, when the horse and cart used to get to the location and the firefighters would get off and do their thing and bravely go into these buildings and start putting out fires and all that sort of stuff, all the good stuff that firefighters do and still do to this day, the dog would stay with the cart, okay, and guard the cart. Because, as we've alluded to before, these dogs were extremely, extremely loyal, and you wouldn't get near you wouldn't get near the near the fire cart to turn the water off with that dog there. I've got to tell you. So, they've got a history of guarding and looking after things. They're also well known as a as a hunting dog. Okay, a trail hound. They can retrieve, or you can use them. You can use them in packs. You can actually use these dogs in packs, and they'll go after wild boar. They'll go after stags. All right. Their intelligence 
has also led them into a few circuses now and again, all right? And they have been used as circus dogs. So they're very, very trainable. As a dog, you know, they are a, a, an extremely intelligent breed. You can do a lot of stuff with them, you know? And like I say, this is, this, is, this is why they have, I think, become so popular. And even at this day, you know, a lot of firefighters haven't forgotten the history of these dogs and to keep them as pets because they are such a decent dog. All right. There is, however, a couple of ailments with this dog. Well, there's one in particular. All right, all dogs have dodgy hips, you know that. Just about every dog I've discussed about, his hips will go eventually, if that's the nature of the dog, okay? But this dog in particular has a, only 70% of them, okay, 70%, are known to have decent hearing, okay? So the Dalmatians, basically, are known as a dog that is likely to go deaf or have some sort of hearing impeachment in its time. All right, so if you, if you get yourself a Dalmatian and it won't come back or it won't listen to what you're saying, it's not because it's a bad dog and untrainable, it's not because it's stupid, it's not because it ain't clever. It's because probably it's deaf, all right? It won't be able to hear you. That's a bad thing for your dog. You don't want a deaf dog, but they're still lovely dogs, whether they're deaf or not. Right, okay. So there is actually a Dalmatian Heritage Project and the Dalmatian Heritage Project began in 2005. The goal of the project was to preserve and improve the Dalmatian breed by breeding parent dogs with the following traits, right? Normal urinary metabolism, okay? Bilateral hearing. They needed to be friendly and confident. And all puppies in the Heritage Project are descendants of Dr. Robert Scable's parent line. Today, Dr. Scable's lines produces the only Dalmatians in the world today that are free of metabolic defect that can lead to urinary problems, all right? So it does show that you can breed, you can, you know, they, they, they've actually, you know, set up projects, you know, like the Dalmatian Heritage Project, which can actually look after the breed. I am going to tell you, though, the downside of that is that a dog that comes from that bloodline is probably going to cost you a little bit more than your average dog. But there you go. Some things you can't put a price on, can you? If you can afford it, especially. So there you go. Like I say, the Dalmatian, then, a superb dog. And I'd recommend it to anybody, like I say. User-friendly, child-friendly, loyal, all the traits that you need in a dog. And what a superb dog. Who don't like a Dalmatian? Who doesn't know the Dalmatian? There you go. All right, so that's this week's dog. This week's dog, the Dalmatian. What a great, what a great breed and what a great dog. There you go. In fact, just before I leave the breed completely, who could forget that, you know, the dog's associated with Budweiser and uh, I think you've actually got a beer company over there that has their beer wagons drawn by Clydesdale horses and they're always accompanied by the Dalmatian. And there, again, those beer wagons were accompanied by the Dalmatian because the owners of the beer company recognised that the Dalmatian, if you left the wagon unattended while you dealt with your load, would be well looked after by a decent dog that would do something about it if required. So there you go. I just thought I'd throw that in at the end there. There you go. My Dalmatians. What a great dog. Okay, finally this week then, before we disappear, I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about the troubles again. Like I said, we're going to do a fair few pieces about the troubles. And if I'm going to deliver all sides of this uh, all sides of this story correctly, I've got to explain to you all sides and all aspects and all angles of the troubles. Okay, and although, like I say, a lot of people don't understand it fully, which is why I'm trying to explain it in, in such a format that you can. It's interesting that some people will only remember the bits that they want to remember and not necessarily the whole story. So as, as, as much as there was the IRA and all these Catholic terrorist organisations, the Protestants had organisations which were classed as paramilitary, classed as illegal, classed as terrorists themselves. So both sides of the community had their wrong their bad their people. Although, like I say, 
both sides of the community are people that believed in these people and, 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 and believed that they were doing the right thing. As far as the British government were concerned, and certainly as far as I was concerned as a serving soldier, a terrorist was a terrorist. If you picked up a gun to prove a point, you were a terrorist, okay? Whereas people will argue, oh, I'm a freedom fighter, I'm this, I'm that, the other. If you try and prove your point by violence, as far as I'm concerned, you're a terrorist. So I need to highlight both sides of the coin on this one. So I'm going to talk this week about a loyalist paramilitary, the UVF. The UVF then, the Ulster Volunteer Force, was an Ulster loyalist paramilitary group dated back to 1966. And its first leader was Gusty Spence. Now, he was a former British soldier. The group undertook an armed campaign of almost 30 years. All right, so they were, they, they were there for almost the entirety of the Troubles. I think they first declared a ceasefire in 1994, but officially ended their campaign in 2007. Some of its members are rumoured to have continued to engage in violence and criminal activities. The group is classified as a terrorist organisation by the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland and your lot, the United States of America. So, what were they hoping to achieve? Well, their main role, or what they would have claimed was their, their number one thing, was to combat Irish republicanism, and in particular, the IRA. They believed that they were sort of like where they would have said that the British Army had the shortfalls of not being able to go after them one after one, you know, because of the nature of how terrorism works. A lot of these would argue that they would go, they would go straight in for the kill, okay? It was responsible, the organisation was actually responsible for more than 500 deaths, and the vast majority of those victims were Irish Catholics. They were allegedly often killed at random. They didn't just operate north of the border as well, they were known to operate down south, in Southern Ireland, and in 1971, they conducted, or allegedly conducted, uh, I think it was McGook's bar bombing, which killed 15 civilians. The group are also alleged to have carried out attacks in the Republic of Ireland from 1969 onwards. The biggest of these was in, was in 1974, Dublin and Monaghan bombings, which killed 34 civilians, making it the deadliest terrorist attack of the conflict. Whereas the IRA used to bang out warnings the UVF never never adhered to that and never gave warnings on, on any of their attacks, which was one of their sort of like trademarks, if you like. So where were they based and how did they operate then? Well, they were based in Belfast and they actually had what they, what they called brigade staff. They had high-ranking officers, a chief of staff, they had a brigadier general. So they, 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 they made themselves up in a real military way. They understood the ways of the military rank system and they sort of like applied that to their own organisation. So they were, you know, they, they built themselves up. There was a definite chain of command. So they were, they were in terms of organisation, fairly well organised. In terms of ranks, it's never been completely clear how many people they actually had in their organisation. But their nickname was the Blacknecks. And that was derived from their uniform of black polo neck jumper, black trousers, black leather jacket, black forage cap, along with a UVF badge and belt. The uniform was based on the original UVS introduced in the early 1970s, okay? So they were, you know, not only did they have this sort of like strategy and structure as a military organisation, they had a uniform and even had cap badges and belts and stuff like that that were all that were all in line with what they were doing. So they had finance, they had a fair amount of support on a lot of the more staunch estates in, in Northern Ireland. Certainly, you know, if you went to areas of Belfast, 
you know, if you looked at places like the Diamond in Londonderry, you know, in, in certain areas, they would have a massive amount of support. And with support comes finance, doesn't it? So they were, you know, they weren't completely outlawed by everybody. You know, they, they, they were accepted on many of the larger estates. They had both men and females amongst their, amongst their ranks. And I've got to say, probably predominantly, they were, they, they were, they were Belfast-based. Although, like I've said, you know, they, they had other, other areas which had staunch, staunch following as well. I've mentioned finance. They also ran black cabs in their own areas. So as the IRA were known for running the black cabs and making money out of the black cabs in, in their areas, the UVF did exactly the same in theirs. And so we're, we're making money that way as well. None of these organisations survive without support and money. And they had both. They never, on the support side of stuff, really had much outside of Northern Ireland, though. And whereas, you know, the IRA had all sorts of support coming in from Norad, the Middle East and places like that, the only links that I could seem to find for the UVF came from Liverpool, Preston, a little bit from Canada. Most of its support came from within Northern Ireland itself. So they probably didn't have the funding without the funding you don't get the capacity, do you? So you don't, you know, they didn't have as many weapons, they didn't have as much access to the explosives that were coming into the Republican organisations because they didn't have the support outside of Northern Ireland. They certainly weren't as publicised as much in the papers and press as the Irish Republican Army. I've even spoken to people, you know, recently who've gone, who, what, the loyalists have paramilitaries as well? So they weren't, you know, they weren't as well known globally as perhaps they were with inside their own territories. They did, however, have a number of affiliated groups, and some of these included the Red Hand Commandos, an organisation that was established in 1972, the Young Citizen Volunteers, the YCV, which was a youth section of the UVS, the Progressive Unionist Party, or the PUP, they also had links there, and the Protestant Action Force as well. So there was, you know, there was, there was, there was a fair amount of sort of like linked, linked organisations that were sort of like smaller organisations of the organisation and that sort of thing, you know, which we saw a lot with the Irish Republican Army who had all sorts of different factions and factors going on, political wings and sidearms and, you know, all this sort of stuff, all, all this different sort of support. So the UVF had this as well, just wasn't or just hasn't been as well documented, I don't think. Their official ceasefire then um, was in 2007, Although the report, there was an independent report into paramilitary activity launched in, in, I think, about 2015, which said that the UVF still had activities going on. And there's some people, they're, they're implicated in drug dealing and that sort of stuff now in North Belfast. That's what the police would have you believe if you looked at a number of independent sources would say that the, you know that they are still alive and kicking the UVF and they still have their hand in sort of like criminal activity and, and, and drug dealing. So... There you go. I just thought it was an opportunity this week to give you an insight into the other side or part of the other side of the coin. It's a massive, complicated thing, the Troubles. And so, you know, when we put all these shows together at the end, hopefully you'll have had a look at every side of the tale. You can have a broader brush picture of what happened on Operation Banner for that 30-year period of insecurity and troubles in Northern Ireland, okay? And it's, you know, for me, it was quite a big part of my life. It took up five years of my time over there working in the capacity of a soldier. And like I say, although probably in terms of 
you know, notoriety and that has been overshadowed in recent conflicts. Nonetheless, this thing went on for 30 years. So the next few episodes, it's my aim to give you a little bit of an insight and explain to you exactly what happened. So that's that almost concludes this week's this week's show. Don't forget, get yourself down to the Crate Club. Some great deals coming on for Christmas. I've been looking at it myself. I'm hoping my crate arrives sometime soon. Love a bit of Crate Club. Get yourself down to softrep.com, crateclub.com. Have a look at all the stuff going on. Don't forget to tune into my live shows, and you can follow me at Big Field Campion on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you'll see my live shows, Big Field Live, three times weekly at random on the softrep.com facebook page which is uh which is always a good laugh and always good to you can ask me questions live there. you can ask me whatever you like so you can listen to me waffle on on here and then if you've got a particular question about something you can slip it in on on my facebook show which will be on softrep.com so lovely to lovely to speak to you again i'll be no doubt bunging a few more out in the near very near future got loads of dogs to cover loads more stuff with northern ireland edc is changing evolving is moving with us all the time so plenty of stuff to talk about there and of course christmas is coming and i've got a few treats in the stocking for you so let's keep it real let's keep chatting let's keep talking until next time i'll see you who dares wins and thanks very much for listening and see you all later on you've been listening to soft rep radio New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.